0: There are many ways in which our tomorrow shapes our today. Consider a dating couple that gets engaged. Soon after the proposal, a wedding day is selected. And pretty much immediately, schedules are set up. And over the weeks to come, decisions are made based on the wedding that is to come. Well, soon after the wedding, the bride finds out that she is five weeks pregnant. And over the next 35 weeks, the couple makes a variety of necessary changes. She talks to her employer and begins some adjustments with her job, and they start to convert the office into a bedroom. And then they find out it's a boy, which allows them to prepare with even more Specificity. It is both wise and necessary to live in light of the future. To not live in expectation of what is to come is foolish. You know you have a test on Tuesday, but you don't study on Monday. You know you have a big meeting at work next week, but do nothing to prepare for it this week. You know that your taxes are due. But you make no preparation to get them done or to get all the numbers to TurboTax so you don't have to do your taxes. You know this life will end. But there are only two ways to live. We can live as if there is no tomorrow, or we can live in light of the future that God tells us about in his word. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It begins with a parable that immediately follows the parable of the, of the prodigal son in chapter 15. And, and I love Jesus' parables. He was the master creator of story. And then there are few things that are more compelling or more attractive than a good story. Parables are fictitious sayings picturing truth. As one has put it so well, parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. It's just a super helpful description. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. And so when we read parables, we want to identify the real toads that are hopping around in the fake garden and see the point that Jesus is making. This particular parable is about money and possessions, which is not a new topic in Luke's gospel as he touches on it numerous times in the preceding chapters. And as he does, he's showing us How Jesus turned upside down the way men should view money. And that true repentance and faith will dramatically change the way a follower of Christ thinks and acts with regard to material possessions. Now I should say that I did not choose to preach this parable because our church has a giving problem. And therefore needs to be challenged in this regard. Oh, in fact, this parable fits really well with us as a church. Evidence of abundant and gracious giving is so obvious to see with repeated years of surplus giving and just recently having celebrated paying off our mortgage. And as I was preparing, there were several names and faces that came to my mind as those who are living out in various ways what we're going to consider in these verses. This issue of money and our stewardship is challenging. It's certainly convicting. But in His Word, God talks about it a lot. While discussing this parable with Dan Nicewander yesterday, he informed me that the Bible contains 2,350 verses about money and possessions, And nearly 40% of Jesus' parables address it in some way. That means we need to hear it. And amidst all the challenge and conviction I experienced in studying this, my soul was deeply encouraged to consider the reward of the life to come. And I hope that yours will be as well. So Father, as we come now to your word, we confess that at times we do so with plugs in our ears and shields over our hearts to protect us from what we do not want to hear from you. We pray that you would forgive us for that disposition and that you will remove the plugs from our ears and the shields from our hearts so we can hear and see and apply what you have for us today through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would do this work through the name of Christ. Amen. So, let's read then the parable, starting in verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So... Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. One commentator noted that no other parable has caused as much perplexity and received as many interpretations as this one. one the exhaustive guide to the parables that I have lists 16 possible interpretations. But as perhaps you've heard said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And through the illumination of the spirits and the use of our minds, we can understand what Jesus is saying to us here. We note that this parable is directed to the disciples or the followers of Christ. But we see in verse 14, if you look down, the Pharisees heard it as well. A rich man had a manager in charge of overseeing his financial accounts. He was probably functioning essentially as a bill collector. Well, an unnamed whistleblower informed the rich man that his manager was wasting or squandering his possessions. That's the same term used of the prodigal son in verse 13 of the previous chapter. Now, we don't know what that all involved, but we can assume that in some way he was consuming much of the master's wealth but was producing very little. It was evident that he was not being an effective manager, working more for himself than for his master. So the master brings the manager in for something more than just an audit. He says, give me all your records and clean out your desk. You're fired. Well, the manager must have known he was guilty, as at least in the account we have, he did not even try to defend himself. Since they didn't have unemployment benefits back then and he was not offered a generous severance package, he knew he was facing a future on the streets. So the fired manager immediately started to consider his options. He didn't want to do manual labor because he wasn't strong enough. And even if he was, it would be pretty embarrassing to go from collecting bills from landowners to digging ditches for them. And he was too proud to beg. I mean, talk about a lowering of status. He likely would have had to beg from those he had previously collected debts from. Losing his job was hard enough. He didn't want to lose his dignity as well. So suddenly he had an idea. But he had to act quickly before his termination became public knowledge. He called in those who owed his master money. Now, we only read of two, but there likely would have been more. The first bill was for 100 measures of oil. would have been about 800 gallons of olive oil which was worth about three years of salary for an average worker. It was a lot. The manager said, I'm going to cut your bill in half. The second debt was for 100 measures of wheat, was roughly 30 tons, would have been a yield of about 100 acres, equivalent to about eight years' worth of salary, yearly salary for the average worker. You get 20% off. I'm knocking it down to 80. Well, it was really a brilliant scheme. And no doubt the debtors were thrilled for the reduction. And it's easy to see how they would feel personally indebted to this recently fired manager. He made some new friends who would be ready in the days ahead to give him a place to stay, a place to eat, perhaps even offer him a job. Now, I don't know what the disciples were expecting the response of the master to be, but there's a pretty good chance they were a bit surprised, as we are, to hear Jesus say at the beginning of verse 8 that the master commended the manager. I mean, how could he do that? Seriously. He just fired this guy. Well, the answer lies in what the master commended him for. He did not commend him for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. We don't use the word shrewd very much today. At least we don't in our house. And Webster defines it as, Clever, a discerning awareness, a practical, hard-headed clearness in judgment. Gives a pretty good idea of what this word means. This manager was shrewd in what he seized, in that he seized an opportunity while he still had time to act. And he was shrewd in that he used his present resources to provide for his inevitable future realities. Now, we can't be certain, but it's possible that what the manager was cutting out of the bill was his own generous commission. It was illegal in Jewish culture to charge interest to fellow Jews, so they would often hide their interest, which often was commission, into the loan itself. And it was not uncommon for them to charge as much as 100% profit on profitable commodities. But even if the amount he reduced was actually supposed to go to his master, his master was so impressed by the shrewdness of what he did on the way out the door that he chose to overlook any loss that may have been his. A good entrepreneur respects other good entrepreneurs, and he could not help but admire how resourceful his ex-manager had been in planning for his unemployment. He had acted now with the future in view, beautifully bending a present opportunity to his long-term purpose, and that, that is what the master is praising here. Well, often in Jesus' parables, the sting comes in the tail. And that is certainly the case with this one. As Jesus tells his disciples in the second half of verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. People of this world are people who belong to this world, those who have not yet received the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. People of the light are those who belong to Christ, having received eternal life through faith. For the people of this world, life is all about them. It's about the here and now, So they give careful attention to the things of this world. And so they're very skillful in their dealings with material things. They're really, 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 really good at doing things for their own advantage. They're experts at looking out for number one. Of course, there are exceptions, but generally speaking people of the world give more thought to their physical well-being than the righteous do to their spiritual well-being. And that's the point Jesus is making here. Jesus is saying that unbelievers are often more shrewd in figuring out how to secure temporal wealth than believers are in figuring out how to secure eternal riches. Unbelievers are more shrewd at figuring out how to secure temporal wealth than believers are in figuring out how to secure eternal riches. Well, the ultimate aim of Jesus' parables is to awaken insight, stimulate the conscience, and move to action. If we've been tracking this far at all, we should have gained some insight. And now it's time to be moved into action, which Jesus calls us to in verses 9 through 13. So we see here three points of application. The first is we must invest in eternal relationships. Note this in verse 9. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So, so building on what he says at the end of verse 8, the point Jesus is making here is that if unbelievers in the secular world are shrewd and smart enough to look out for their best interest for tomorrow, how much more should the people of God look to the future of heaven? The Greek word translated wealth here is mammon, which was an idiom used simply to describe worldly goods. It refers to all of our stuff money and possessions. It's everything we have that we cannot take with us. Jesus calls this wealth unrighteous, which is a bit surprising because. Money and possessions themselves are really morally neutral, right? They, they can be used for good or for bad. I think the sense here is money of this world, which is deceitful. Money of this world, which tends to corrupt and therefore can so easily be put to wrong use. Well, who are these Friends? As the manager's newly earthly friends were those he had helped by reducing their debt, these eternal friends are those who have become Christians or whose lives are influenced for God or helped in some way by means of giving away our material wealth. So tying back to verse 4, and it's really key to see the connection between verse 9 and verse 4, Jesus is saying that just as the dishonest manager used the wealth under his control to secure favor on earth and be welcomed into the homes of his debtors, I want you to use the wealth under your control to secure favor in heaven by making eternal friends who will welcome you into everlasting homes. Have you ever thought about heaven in this relational sort of way? Jesus references our physical dwelling, but his focus here is on relationships with friends, a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death, and which is more important than money in the bank. I mean, we often hear people say something like, My $5 million beach home was destroyed in the hurricane. But my children are safe. And that's really all that matters. Well, that's because it's love that gives us significance. And relationships are what gives us security. There is a wealth we experience when we're loving people and surrounded by people who love us back that no money in this world Can provide. And that's because we were created for relationship with God and with others. And we're meant to live forever in a depth of relationships, in an experience of love that does not exist here on earth because of sin. But in heaven, there will be no pain, there will be no hurt. There will be no unhappiness in any of our relationships and we'll experience this perfect love in depth of relationships perfectly. Is there something in your heart that desires this perfect love in depth of relationship? Are you confident that you will experience it in heaven? The point Jesus is making here is not that we can somehow buy our way into heaven, right? We could never give enough. Heaven's only interest requirement is faith in Jesus Christ and the true and perfect friend who emptied himself of all of his money to turn enemies into friends. Jesus is the ultimate and perfect, honest manager who gave up all of his wealth, and paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross in our place. He has opened the door to heaven for us by rising from the dead and going ahead of us into glory. Jesus has done the work to reconcile us to God. All that is necessary for you to become his friend has been completed in Jesus Christ. And this eternal relationship of perfect love can be yours if you will but turn from your sin and trust in Christ's work through faith. And if you have any questions about what that means, or what does it look like to turn from sin and trust in Christ, please say something before you leave. We would love to talk with you more about that. Well, to all the sons and daughters of light here this morning, have you ever thought about this as a motivation for how we should use our wealth? I was aware of this parable. I I know Pastor Miller preached it back in 2005. I was there. But, But I confess that I hadn't really thought hard or gotten into this on a deeply personal level And just until this past week, and it's been pretty mind blowing for me to think about. When we worship the Lord through giving to the cause of God's kingdom, we are walking to heaven's bank and making a deposit. In our church, we know of people who've been saved, baptized, and discipled as a result of our giving. But but no doubt there are many others who've come to Christ through the ministry of this church who we don't even know about. Yet. In this life, we can't know everything about how simple gifts that we give trickle down and have an influence on a person for Jesus Christ. But God directs every single cent we give And he knows exactly how it contributes to someone's eternity. And as we give, there will be a direct line back to our wallet or our piggy bank. And there will be friends who welcome us into our eternal home because of what we gave. So, first, we must invest in eternal relationships. Second, we must be a faithful steward. Note this in verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in which, that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? Well, I think based on the context, the faithfulness Jesus has in mind here is to shrewdly invest in eternal relationships. These are certainly connected. The very little in verse 10, just look at verses 10 and 11, and note that the very little in verse 10 is the unrighteous wealth in verse 11. And the much in verse 10 is the true riches in verse 11. And the point is that if we are unfaithful with something as small as our earthly income and possessions, then God cannot trust us to be faithful with the true riches of heaven. Have you ever thought, I don't really have a lot of money? But if I had a lot more money, then, then I could give. Or if I only had a bigger or nicer house, then I would be able to use it for hospitality in service to others. Really? Really? Doesn't seem to jive with what Jesus is saying here. The way we can tell what we would do with more is to examine what we're already doing with what we have. Because our faithfulness is not dependent on how much we have, but what we do with what we've been given. Our faithfulness does not depend on what we have, but on what we do with what we've been given. And verse 12 makes the point that what we have in this life doesn't actually belong to us. If we aren't faithful with the material possessions that God has given us to manage, he says, How can he give us eternal spiritual possessions of our own? Now, our culture instills the idea that what we have earned is ours. And since it's ours, we can use it however we want. Well, we see that that's not really the case here. And just thinking beyond that, where did we get the life, health, and ability to be able to earn money? The Bible answers that for us in Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Right? We can all tend to think that. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And what about the circumstances that have allowed us to earn all that we have? Did we choose all of those circumstances? Like, for example, if you were born in Tibet in the 15th century, you could have worked really, 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 really hard. But you would not have nearly the wealth that you do today. You see that nothing that we have truly belongs to us. We didn't bring it in. And we won't take it out. And as we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians 29, all of it, all of it belongs to God. It's his money. It's his house. It's his furniture. It's his vehicles. Everything that we have has been entrusted to us by our master. And when you're managing someone else's stuff, you can't just do whatever you want with it because it's not your stuff. Have you ever borrowed something from a friend or neighbor that could easily be broken or messed up in some way? You, you know it's really, really valuable to them. You know it would be expensive to replace And so you really listen to all of the instructions they give you. And and you're super, super careful as you use it. Kind of holding your breath the whole time that it, it won't break. Well, we are in charge of the Lord's possessions. And how much more should we care about properly using everything he's given us than any item we may borrow from a friend or a neighbor this faithfulness and how we use our material possessions no matter how much it's a really big deal it's a big deal because it's tied to our eternal destiny and will directly affect whether or not we will receive eternal wealth in heaven we can't miss that in these verses it's it's a really big deal Now, being a faithful steward cannot save us any more than any other good work, but it is evidence. It is evidence of a living and active faith that alone can save. J.C. Ryle summarized well what Jesus is saying on this point. He does so in a way that I believe is accurate. It's also really sobering. He says, he who is dishonest and unfaithful in the discharge of his duties on earth must not expect to have heavenly treasure or be saved. Unfaithfulness in money transactions is a sure evidence of a rotten state of soul. So we must invest in earthly relationships. We must be a faithful steward. And then finally, we must serve God, not money. We read this in verse 13. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In this verse, it seems as if Jesus really just kind of summarizes everything he's been saying before. The word translated money here is mammon. It's the same word in verse 9, referring generally to everything that we own. Money has the power to rule our hearts, and its rule is in direct conflict with the rule of God. And Jesus says that we cannot serve them both We cannot serve two masters. And I think we can understand that. So imagine you're Alex B. I don't see Alex here this morning. But Alex is in his plane, and he's coming in to land at an airport. And there's two different air traffic controllers giving him different directions of where and how to land the plane. Well, that's not going to work, is it? That would never work. There must be only one set of directions to follow in order to safely land the plane. And it's striking, I think, it is to me, that there's no middle ground here. I think we can easily think that it'd be kind of nice if Jesus said we could serve God with some of our stuff maybe around 10% and then serve ourselves with the remaining 90 or if we could use most of our stuff for ourselves and then give god just whatever happens to be left but jesus says we have to choose either god or our material possessions Our hearts can only have one dominating love and whatever affection is greatest is the one that we will serve. Money is a tempting idol. It's an attractive master. We will either be using it to invest in heaven or we will worship and we will serve it. So as we put The parable and the follow up teaching with it, we see that Jesus is teaching us to invest in eternal relationships, to be faithful stewards, and to serve God instead of money. And it ought to be really clear to us, as one has noted, that a passive approach to money is no more Christian than a passive approach to our time our talents, or our relationships. Our money is meant to be used for good and eternal ends. Now, we know from Scripture in numerous other places that it's not inherently wrong to have lots of money or possessions. And First Timothy 6.17 says that God gives us all things to enjoy, So we know that it's not necessarily wrong to spend money on things that we don't need and to use our wealth for personal enjoyment. That's God's good design. But knowing the deceitfulness of money and possessions and their power to master our hearts. One of the things I found myself asking this past week, how can I know? Like, how can I tell whether or not I'm being a shrewd manager? How do I know if I'm being a faithful steward who's serving God and not money? I didn't, couldn't come up with a super easy answer. I don't think there is an easy answer. And I think it's a question that we need to have before us with thoughtful reflection for the rest of our lives. Some financial decisions are more clear than others. And due perhaps to not enough thought, prayer, discussion with others, or even just idolatry, we will make some decisions that really are not the best. But as we fight for faithful service to God with all of our money and stuff, I offer six diagnostic questions that should help us discern our hearts. They should help us maintain a priority of eternal values with our possessions. So here they are, the first most directly flowing out of this text? Am I regularly giving money to the cause of Christ? Am I regularly giving money to the cause of Christ? Two questions here that relate. The first is, where should I give? And I would say that since the local church is ground zero for the working out of God's purposes on earth, she should be priority and where we give first. But we should also consider contributing to other Christian nonprofit ministries or even individuals who are serving the cause of Christ. And finally, we should be prepared to spontaneously give to a need that the Lord unexpectedly brings across our path. How much should we give? Well, in the full scope of Scripture, we see that it's not ultimately about any particular amount. Our hearts are what matters to God. And so that's where the focus must be. Having said that, the principle of the Old Testament tithe, or 10%, is is perhaps a good starting point. And I think that we ought to see it, in a sense, then, as like a good floor, But it probably shouldn't be our ceiling, since the New Testament teaches the grace of generous giving that is not limited by any percent. So we start with that question, am I regularly giving to the cause of Christ? Here's just a few more. Does not having something I want cause me to be discontent or lead me to anger, anxiety, or depression? Am I turning to money or possessions for the satisfaction, security, or something else that I should be seeking in God? Am I willing to use my apartment, my townhome, or my house, no matter the size, to invest in eternal relationships? Do I let others use my possessions, either because they need them, or simply to bless them with their use? Do I ever look for ways I can lower my discretionary spending, intentionally choose a lower standard of living in one way or another, or address my dreams for vacation and travel so that I'll have more to give? Am I willing to consider setting aside less for retirement? Or putting less in my savings account in order to invest more in eternity. As important as they are, investments in savings accounts can be very respectable idols. And, and I can't help at this point just to mention Compass, a nonprofit financial discipleship ministry that is doing so much. Good work to help Christians think about biblical stewardship and apply it to our lives. And in case you were not aware, Dan Niswander, Ron Hagen, and Mike and Joanna Meeling serve with this ministry. Ron and Dan teach Bible classes for both adults and teens on this topic. And then Ron recently shared with me three courses that Compass is offering in the coming months and years charting your legacy which focuses on stewardship in the later years of life, setting your house in order, which focuses on estate planning. Jolene and I need to take that one in. And then building your finances God's way, which is basic biblical stewardship. So I'd encourage you to check out Compass. Talk to Ron or Dan or Mike and JJ and consider even tagging in perhaps to some of their teaching and materials, just to help you to continue to deepen and to think and to grow in this regard. Well, our Lord has taught us this morning that a faithful steward will use his master's money shrewdly to provide for true riches for eternity. Puritan Thomas Adams said, to part with what we cannot keep, that we may get that which we cannot lose is a good bargain. Wealth can do us no good unless it help us toward heaven. One of the few timeless game shows on TV is Let's Make a Deal. I suspect that most of you have seen that show at least a little bit. And in that game show, contestants have to choose between a prize that they can see or a prize that is hidden behind a curtain. And the visible prize is usually quite nice. And sometimes the unseen prize would turn out to be some impractical gag gift, like 10,000 boxes of toothpicks or something useless like that. But at other times the prize behind the curtain would be something of far greater value, like a new car. And if the contestant chose the visible prize of a new stereo and not the unseen prize of the new car, the crowd would kind of groan, and you could feel with him the awful sense. Oh, he made the wrong choice. That was a foolish decision. Well, the difference between that game show and reality is this. God has promised that what we cannot see now behind the curtain is so much better than what we can see now. It doesn't even compare. What we cannot see now behind the curtain is so much better than what we can see now. So may the reality of our tomorrow shape our today. And may we live by faith in the promise that as we invest the wealth that we're going to lose anyway in the kingdom of God, we will inherit eternal riches that we will never lose. We thank you, Father, for Christ who's made possible friendship with you through his death and through his resurrection. And we thank you for the grace of giving that we see in so many ways in the life of our church. And we pray, Lord, that that would continue to grow. As your servants, we desire to be faithful stewards. And so, Father, we ask that you would please keep us from the love of money, And please grant us wisdom in our decisions regarding spending and how to use our stuff. Decisions regarding saving and giving. And may the Lordship of Christ affect how we make every single one. We thank you, Father, for the many opportunities over the years that you've given us as a church to make friends in heaven. And as we think carefully about the re- over the rest of this year about the vision for our financial future, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a shrewd manager who faithfully stewards all that you've entrusted to us through the giving of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would do this work in us for your glory and for our eternal joy. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.